know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to have Mary Davis Michaud, a faculty associate at the La Follette School of Public Policy. Professor Michaud joined La Follette School in October 2020 after working for more than two decades in public health roles at the local, state, and national levels. Most recently, she worked with the Center for Patient Partnerships at the University of Wisconsin Law School, teaching courses in health policy, public health, and systems thinking for interdisciplinary groups of graduate and professional students. Professor Michaud has also held positions in executive leadership with a local public health agency, qualitative research with the Veterans Administration, and product development for a health IT startup. She has also worked as a senior analyst for a Washington, D.C.-based federal contractor. Professor Michaud received her bachelor's degree from UW-Madison, where she was the university's first Henry Luke Scholar in Asia. She completed her Master of Public Policy Studies and Certificate in Health Administration at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy Studies. We are grateful for the opportunity to ask Dr. Michaud about her time at the UW-Madison, her career path, and her new role at the La Follette School of Public Affairs. We will also ask Mary for her advice for students interested in pursuing a similar career path. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Michaud. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. We can start kind of broadly. Will you tell us a little bit about your professional narrative so far and how you came to the La Follette School and how you went from, you know, a student here at the university now to a successful professor here? Thanks, Adam. You know, it's funny. I probably have a path similar to a lot of political science undergraduate majors um, I, too, majored in political science here at UW-Madison, go Big Red. I came from a small Wisconsin town. I grew up in a rural area, kind of free range. I helped my parents run a small business. By the time I was 16, I was doing my dad's payroll. Um, and I had a really great teacher in high school for history and world affairs. And that made a huge difference in sort of shaping my interests. And I would imagine a lot of students have that kind of experience. Um, when I came to UW-Madison as an undergraduate, it was sort of amazing. Uh, there were so many things I, I had no idea I could learn here. Um, so I felt like I had been sort of set free in some ways to to explore what was out there. And after having, you know, spent some time thinking about world affairs and um, sort of the, the complexity of the world, I thought political science fit for what I was interested in. Now, I was also really interested in science. So um, when it came to kind of deciding a path, something happened to me in undergrad that um, really profoundly sort of shifted my view of the world. And that was that my, my dad um, passed away when I was between my sophomore and junior year. He had 
um, a pretty nasty cancer, obviously, and he ended up dying. And so, you know, I was one of his primary caregivers and watched how he moved through the healthcare system. At that time in my town, we didn't have anything like hospice. And so I saw kind of the the effects of somebody who was relatively well-resourced, right? He had health insurance coverage. He had good care. He had access to treatment. And yet his process of um, healthcare in that time was really not fun. Not, not like I felt like it could be. So that really shifted how I um, went about my life, as you might imagine. And it really set the stage later to do many of the things to shape the choices I made um, and eventually to, to really specialize in health policy. In terms of a professional narrative, I'd say that during college, I was so focused on what was right in front of me, like the cool ways that my classes sort of wove together, the, the discoveries I was making by taking sort of a political philosophy course on the one hand, and then, you know, an ethics course on the other, or seeing how history courses, I took a lot of black labor history was one of the places that I learned a ton from, from a professor who was here when I was in school named Herbert Hill. He was an incredible man. And I remember at one point taking a course from him in black labor history. because I was very interested in racial inequality. And he said, he said, oh, by the way, next week in our seminar, Toni Morrison will be joining us. <laughs> and we all, sort of, we all sort of were speechless, right? So we sat in a room in humanities with Toni Morrison for an hour and a half when I was an undergraduate student here. It was unbelievable. She had come to give a chancellor's lecture or something, right? That was one of the highlights, obviously, of my undergraduate career. But, but the other piece was that UW-Madison gave me all kinds of opportunities. And, and at my core, I'm an opportunist, so I took advantage of them. I, was, I got one of the first Hildale undergraduate research fellowships, which are still around today. Um, I went and worked in Central America. I learned a huge amount, of, not only about the sort of policy issues I was, I was looking at there, but like how to get along in the world, how to build relationships across cultures. The language training I got at UW-Madison was super valuable in Spanish. And when I came back, I had the, I had the bug <laughs> and I wanted to go overseas again. So I found a fellowship, the Henry Luce Scholars Program in Asia, and I applied on a whim because most of the people who ended up going on that fellowship, a lot of them sort of were choosing between applying to the Rhodes Scholarship and, and the Loose Scholarship. And I thought, I'm just this kid from a small town, Wisconsin high school, right? I, I didn't have the sense of even competing, but I wound up winning it and going to Asia for a year. And it completely changed my, my worldview again. So when I came back, I had this idea that I would go toward medical school because I was so interested in science and health. And I talked to my friends at that time who had also gone to UW-Madison. They were in medical training and they said, you know, you may want to sort of really consider, <laughs> consider that. They were entering residency 
And it was hard and it was all consuming and it was their whole entire life. And so that told me a lot because my response was that I wanted balance. And I also started focusing on systems, sort of what are the systems of injustice that are perpetuated through policies? And that's when I decided to pursue a public policy master's. Well, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. And and wow, I mean, what a what an experience to be able to listen to to Tony Morrison on campus. I mean, I ran into Steve Miller one time, but meeting the base cowboy holds nothing on you know talking to Pulitzer, Nobel winner, Presidential Medal for Wow, that's amazing. And it seems like there's some pretty clear moments in your life where things have happened that have either catalyzed your interest in public policy or specifically health policy or finding that balance between the sciences and the actual practice of a thing. But what about teaching and education? Uh, at what moment further in, say, your intellectual or professional development did you ever start to lean towards teaching these kind of things? Sam, that's a great question. I thought, you know, to be a good student of policy or an advocate of solid public policy, I needed to have very left brain quantitative positions, which I did. And one of the roles that I took Immediately after graduate school, I went to the University of Chicago for my policy training, which you might imagine is 90% economics, or at least at that time, and a little sprinkling of some other disciplines. <laughs> and the role I had actually was initially a quantitative one, but then I was asked to do a lot of qualitative work. In other words, focus groups. And the focus group work that I did introduced me to facilitation skills and to qualitative analysis. And I discovered that I loved that field. I loved the combination of quantitative and qualitative work because it gave such a breadth and a depth of insights into an issue. So after that, what ended up happening is that I was drawn toward roles that had a facilitation component. A lot of what I've done has professional facilitation embedded in it. And as you might guess, facilitation is a skill base that lends itself to teaching. So when I became a better facilitator in qualitative research, and then I would be asked to do training as part of different jobs that I had, gosh, it worked out well. <laughs> I was actually good at that. And so a number of different roles um, allowed me to take on more educational or facilitation sort of specializations, and they mostly had to do with health. So one example was in, um, in public health, right? One of the roles that, I, that I've had was with a county, city-county public health agency, and I oversaw a division of about 80, 80 people, all the data all the home visiting in, in community health nursing, all of the food sort of WIC program, anything that had to do with partnerships I was overseeing in the community. And I kept getting asked into sort of multi-sectoral conversations. I kept getting invited to these meetings about housing or about environmental policy or about hoarding, or especially at the time I was doing it and continues to be an issue to this day, the opioid epidemic. How do we connect the dots between 
pieces of very complex problems? And how do we facilitate our way through conversations where we're really trying to engage people in those conversations whose points of view are not often heard? And that's where my, my policy training combined with the qualitative and sort of educator bent, if you will, which I see as facilitation. That's where I said, I keep getting invited into these spaces. And it's really a sort of let's all learn about complex issues together if that makes sense. So over time, I've been teaching on and off for the Center for Patient Partnerships at the law school here at the university. And I worked for them in the mid 2000s. I had done some consulting for them. They hired me into a role where I taught. And since then, I've been teaching health policy and more more recently taught for the MPH program at the School of Medicine and Public Health. When the position at La Follette School of Public Affairs opened that combined teaching health policy and public policy with advising undergrads. (laughs) How could I, how could I not, how could I not look at that role? So I think the other thing I would say about a teaching role and, and the role that I'm in now, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about, but I always felt when I was in very quantitative analytical positions that for me anyway, something was missing. And I discovered over time that that was a creative bent. At heart, I'm really right-brained. I I tend toward the creative. You can see all this stuff. This is actually an office, but it's my art studio. (laughs) And so I needed to To be happy, to be content in life, I needed to acknowledge that creative side. And teaching to me is a creative art as much as it is a discipline in very sort of, you have to be very organized and methodical and clear and repetitive. At the same time, every time I teach, it's different and it's a creative process for me. So that's been such a a great way to to sort of spend a professional life. That is all like so amazing and i love the the distinction you make between or like how education is facilitation and especially the creativity aspect i definitely understand that very heavily you've worked in the public sector you've worked in the private sector a lot of students especially seniors now as we're entering the spring semester are looking at jobs and you know their prospects in their career can you give students especially students that are really interested in policy just like you kind of the the differences that you have found in your career between like working in the public sector and policy and working in the private sector? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a great question, Adam. Most approaches to complex problems are intersectoral. They're not approached effectively through any one discipline. And the beauty of a public policy training is that the social bottom line is one that you learn to grapple with. You know, if you have a business training, for example, the bottom line is is usually fairly straightforward. To survive, we must have a good profit to loss ratio. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's a fairly clear bottom line. And in the social sector, we and in policy training, we learn how to tease out what, what exactly is our bottom line, short-term, intermediate-term, long-term. And that can be really hard to understand. So having some comfort in in that uncertainty is actually something that if you're working in policy realms, 
whether that's in the private sector or public sector or sort of quasi-public sector, if you will, is super important. It's where living overseas, right? Living in a, in a country that doesn't have great rule of law, let's say, um, where schedules are very unpredictable, you know, getting comfy with that, that uncertainty, that was really useful to me. I'd say in these times of, of real uncertainty, recognizing that a policy training is going to boost your ability to sort of see through the noise and take apart complex issues, defining problems from the perspectives of people who are most impacted by them and seeing where that data might lie, right? Being able to kind of zoom out and zoom in on problems when you need to. Those skills come with, with policy training. Applying evidence only really comes when you're able to question your own assumptions about a problem. And looking for answers in creative and innovative ways means that you kind of approach these issues, whether it's climate policy or transportation policy or industrial policy or economic development policy, whatever the, the policy area is, from experience, you approach those ideas with kind of this deep sense of humility. Because if you think you know all the answers and you don't engage other people who have different perspectives, you're going to look like an idiot. <laughs> I speak from experience. So the things I would say right now is think less in terms of either or. Most policy solutions come from this combination of trying things out in the private or quasi-public sector. Maybe it's through innovation and government you know, government sponsored programs, but not thinking so dichotomously, like, oh, I'm working either in the public sector or in the private sector, but really learning how to talk about the value of your skill set in approaching tough problems with patience and analysis and learning how to engage other people that have a different perspective on that problem and respecting their input. Those are the skills that in any sector are going to be really valuable. And what I'd say is that as people come out of their degree programs into an economy that is not kind, just starting out, it's important to look less at the, oh my God, this is the be all end all and keep the, the longer term in view. If I go to work out of undergraduate for a couple of years, maybe I'm going to think about going to graduate school, but I don't really know what that is yet. What I want is a place where I can learn things. I can learn skills. I might learn really deep kind of analytical skills and data. Whatever opportunities are out there, evaluate them from sort of the which rung of the ladder toward achieving my goals might this help me with versus like wrapping your identity around that particular job because that's not useful to, to most people, I'd say. And uh, I... I totally agree with that point about looking at differing or diverse perspectives because I think that just happened to me. I had never considered that interaction that you were talking about between the public and private policy sector, but I think that's a much more accurate and much more nuanced way of looking at it. So to both those points, thank you for sharing them. And I think personally, really, really kind of elucidating. But while we're still on the subject of advising students who are maybe looking at a public policy career, 
How would you advise students who are interested in public policy as undergrads to think about organizing their academic and internship and also work experience in planning for public policy jobs and postgrad programs? You talked a little bit about how important your overseas experiences and other things were in developing your interests and eventual career path in the public policy. So for students who are maybe trying to plan out the next couple of years or maybe just even this upcoming semester, what balance or what kind of priorities would you urge them to strike between academics and also extracurricular internship or work opportunities? Yeah, Sam, it's a it's a really great question. And, you know, if I have students who I've never met before and I'm meeting with them for the first time, a couple of the things that I ask are for them just to kind of imagine a year from now. You know, let's say they're seniors and they're kind of, I don't know if I should apply to grad school now. I know I want to go at some point, you know, if, if for example, they're considering public policy. Um, and imagine a year from now and you've hit it out of the park, right? You're living the life. You're, you're out working. What in life is going on? You know, so, so having this sort of visioning tells me a lot about what's important to someone. If they say something like, you know, I've heard quite a few students are interested in climate, but it's such a huge field. Like, where do I fit? If they say something to me like, I've found a place where I'm really digging into the issues and I'm, I'm learning a huge amount, like learning curve is the theme that I hear after they talk to me for a little bit. I'll ask, I'll kind of ask more questions about that. If they say to me, well, I've, you know, I've kind of been putting off spending a bunch of time with my family, right? I want to go back home. I want to reconnect. I want to find something in wherever they can, Ohio, or, you know, use some of my skills and connect with my family. I think it's important for people to listen to where their soul takes them versus what external forces are telling them to do <laughs> to a certain degree. I mean, it's one thing to be strategic about your career, but it's another, it's a real sort of separate thing, especially in a time that is unprecedented for any of us in this pandemic to connect with what's most important to you and to really make that commitment to yourself and, and to those things that are, that are key. Now that said, um, I think some of the other sort of practical pieces, one is that too many people I think are really legitimately afraid or have this trepidation about quant, about quantitative coursework, which is in any public policy program, part of the required path. Most, if not all, I'd say most public policy programs are set up to welcome you in at whatever stage you are. They have math camps, they have microeconomics trial by fire to make it like, to make it safe to enter in because policy policy schools recognize the need for really diverse student bodies to go out and and sort of practice this profession. So what I would say is that analytic piece can be a real stumbling block for people and to not be so um how should I say don't be frightened by that explore programs that have that capacity to take people and help them make it through that part. Because at the end of the day, really knowing how at least to read the literature, at least to recognize a good study from a not good study, to really understand sort of 
those quantitative methods as a consumer of, of information, that's really one of the most important and most valuable things. If you can get into a position, better yet, before you go to policy school, that allows you to practice that, then you'll have this better sense of why these things are important, why these quantitative methods are so critical, and you'll be motivated. <laughs> you'll be motivated to go through what might be a little more painful. That is excellent, excellent advice for students. Now, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about some of like the nitty gritty detail or, you know, some of the, the day to day things that come with a policy job like this. Because, you know, when students are thinking about a career in policy, they're thinking being a research analyst and they're thinking, all right, I'm going to be drafting bills. I'm going to be doing a bunch of policy research. That's that's what I'm going to be doing. But in your experience, what does a research analyst or someone in a public policy professional career do day to day, especially, you know, with your ample experience in the field? It's a great, it's a great question, Adam. And my short answer is that folks with policy training are doing everything under the sun. <laughs> um, for folks in STEM, there's a burgeoning need for people in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to understand policy, as you might imagine. They're battling misinformation in DC. They're steering Silicon Valley companies toward more ethical practice. They're really at the forefront of climate policy. So that field, you know, a lot of times STEM majors are so focused on just just completing the requirements in front of them. And what we really hope to do at the La Follette School in growing our certificate program is to engage a diverse set of students who may not recognize the value of policy training in their careers. In terms of the things that that folks do, I, I also serve as an alumna of the um, University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. I'm, I'm co-chairing the Careers and Networks Committee on our Alumni Council, and I've learned a lot about what alumni from my own school have been up to consulting. The big eight consulting firms are hiring policy students to really grapple with public sector consulting issues. And a lot of that's in healthcare, but it's also in the energy energy industry. It's some of the less known areas of the sort of data analytics pieces that policy students are particularly well suited for are in public finance. And so for those of, of you who are listening who have a bent toward loving budgets, and lining numbers up so that we can predict what's going to happen two years down, five years down the line, right? If you like that, there is a huge set of opportunities in public finance. Um, we at, at the La Follette School have lots of great public finance courses coming on, online. A few of the lesser, sort of less predictable skills and, and roles, I'd say, that I personally have had with a policy training one is, is creating partnerships because we learn how to use data from lots of sectors. I'm equally comfortable going into health data as I in, am, am into social policy data or economic data, right? Now, I may not be expert in those, but give me a problem. And if I need to find those data, I'm not afraid to do that. And that's super useful when you're talking to, to folks from different sectors, right? If they see that you value an urban and regional planning perspective, for example, or a transportation perspective, or, you know, that you have critical questions that add value to their work around data in the IT policy governing healthcare, for example, then all of a sudden you're a partner 
because you add useful insight, right? So creating partnerships. Strategy is a huge piece of what people with policy training do. And by strategy, what I mean is really understanding in an organization, where do we want to be in the next year, three years, five years? And how are we going to get there without breaking the bank? And how do we grow our people? That's another piece that I've done and learned a lot about because we had training in organizational development in policy school is managing people. You know, management and leadership are clearly one of the places that folks with policy training belong, including more and more people that are being elected to public office. So it's not just policy analysis. Policy analysis is a piece of the policy process. It's agenda setting, it's leadership, it's, you know, having the courage to step into other sectors and ask critical questions. And so really taking these steps into a field and recognizing the value of this training that offers the sort of analytic foundations, the comfort with data, the communication skills that we demand, sort of a theme in public policy is dig and dig and dig and dig, get your head around a problem and figure out what the problem even is, and then put it in a nutshell, boil it down. So name an employer who can't use that right now, (laughs) and I'll give you some clear reward because that is in huge demand in just about every sector. Thank you for just giving us that great summary of just kind of what the field is and and what individuals do in that field. Uh, But to, to pivot then for a moment from these more public policy roles to your role now at La Follette, what does your current position look like in the School of Public Affairs? What will you be doing and what other roles will you have in terms of other things such as advising? Sure. So the position that I have is is sort of a broad handled position, faculty associate. Um, and I think that position may morph over time. <laughs> right now, um, my charge is to teach classes in the graduate program. We have a master's in public affairs program along with a master's in international public affairs. I'm sticking with the the sort of students who are looking at domestic health policy, and that's my teaching area. So for example, this semester, I'll be teaching a course on health systems and policy. And um, I design the course, teach it, you know, work with the students. I also oversee our graduate internship. So as part of the La Follette School's master's program, students as well as the undergraduate certificate program, students have to get applied experience. And so I help them sort of glean the lessons along the way. And I'm their their touch point as they go through an internship process. So that's the teaching end um, of my my role. On the advising side of my role, I'm the undergraduate advisor. So we have about 160 students in our undergraduate certificate program in public policy. And it just started a year and a half ago. So you can see the the demand has been pent up for a little while, I think. (laughs) So really strategically growing our our role in helping undergraduates get some policy training is is basically what I'm ushering along. Now, as students are thinking about a career in public policy, what are some things that you would emphasize to students that they, you know, really keep up on as they're applying to and trying to get into public policy schools? You know, I'm thinking like 
what advice do you have for their grades? What advice do you have for some of the things that they're including in their application? Sure. It's a great question too. Um, I'd say from the qualifying to get in perspective, schools are really looking for people who've demonstrated a solid interest. There are a lot of people applying who do have a couple of years, if not more, experience working outside of undergrad, so after undergrad. And um, the reason, you know, I, I did that, and the reason that becomes valuable is that when you do come back into a field that is so broad and has so many possibilities, you've gotten a bit of a sense of where you may like to focus and why the methods that you're learning are so valuable. I've talked to to folks returning to policy school through mentorship that I've done, and it seems like after they have a sense of um, that sort of zoomed out bigger picture, they're much more able to choose courses within a policy program that that make that experience worthwhile. So that's that's sort of one one lesson. And it's not unequivocal. There are a lot of undergrads who've got really great summer work experience or they've, you know, they may have taken a gap year or gone overseas. And that's that's very applicable. But I feel like because policy is a very applied science sort of discipline, it's helpful to have that kind of what you might call real world experience. Grades are important. Um, a lot of the coursework that might prepare folks for public policy school centers around being able to communicate clearly. Some comfort with quantitative methods is really helpful, I think. A real commitment to understanding specific areas of policy or issue areas and an openness to challenge your own assumptions are some of the themes that will get people a lot farther in applying. You know, there are other disciplines that are perhaps much more, how should I say, linear. And boy, if you're not willing to, to sort of back up and say, why do I think that? And where did my belief come from? And am I willing to like really challenge that? If you can demonstrate that that's been your path, that's huge. Like, do you read things on both sides of the aisle? Do you get a sense of what different perspectives in an argument, why they say what they say? Do you come at it from purely an advocacy standpoint? Because... Public policy school, if you're absolutely 100% advocacy, it may be frustrating to you because you're going to be challenged, which is the point. (laughs) You get to better solutions by entering into that kind of dialogue. And then to kind of expand upon that a little bit, I want to kind of ask you for your advice to college students more generally, maybe, maybe even outside of the classroom, to prepare themselves for an MPA program or policy school. So what kind of things did you do outside the classroom that you found helped for these programs and the job market? And then also, are there things that you feel like, especially given the fact that you also attended the UW, your classroom experience or education solely maybe didn't necessarily prepare you for that journey and that you kind of had to find somewhere else? And if so, where would you advise students to seek that? Yeah, I think where I hit my, (laughs) for lack of a better term, my biggest and most painful learning curves was when I entered into management positions 
which for most, you know, newly minted undergrads, if you will, um, or even out of master's programs, that's a little ways off. But I think my dog can, I think that keeping in mind that over and above how well you can perform the technical pieces of a job, being able to get along with people, develop really solid relationships with a diverse group, whether it's diversity in age or in professional training and having like this, this sort of sense that everyone plays an equally important role in an organization, um, really looking at ways of, of learning how to quote unquote manage up in an organization. And that means, um, that means taking leadership roles that aren't clearly leadership roles, introducing other ideas in non-threatening ways is an example of that. So those relational skills and those team building skills, any place you can get leadership training, right? Um, sometimes there are offerings for leadership training and I'm so thrilled to be able to support that at the U University of Wisconsin. We didn't have that really concrete focus on, on leadership, for example, when I was an undergrad. Take full advantage of that stuff because those skills in relationship building and in sort of leadership and management are golden. They're golden. Sometimes it comes down to knowing when to wait, knowing when to pause and not say anything, <laughs> which is a choice versus, versus kind of having to be heard all the time. And, and those seem like, oh, that's not really what people are hi hiring for. Oh, yes, it is. So emotional intelligence is as important, and I would argue in certain places, more important than the technical skills that you might bring. Because tech, te technical skills are changing so fast in so many fields that the way you move through an organization and the respect that you can deliver is golden. And sometimes, you know, we learn, we learn unfortunately, we learn the hard way. I try to avoid that. <laughs> you know, the, the, the piece I think, too, that I was going to mention about that is often if you can find in an organization that you work with, whether that's here on campus as a student, whether that's in a summer job at a camp, whatever it is, finding a mentor that has skills like that it could be a custodial staff. Honest to God, I have learned so much from people who are there after hours when I'm trying to finish something up. The wisdom that they bring. I can't stress enough just sort of finding unpredictable mentors that may not have hierarchical position over you, so to speak. They may be people you just get to know and giving that credence in life in general is going to serve you really, really well. That is Yet more fantastic advice. And as, as we're coming up on time, we probably just have a couple more questions, but I want to ask, what is something that you wish someone had told you in college about your career now? Yeah, what is something that you wish you had known, I guess, in college, looking forward into your career? Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> I think one of the biggest things that comes up for me is really just to be patient. And to recognize the present moment as the best teacher. I think that I was sort of 
anxious to get on to the next thing and anxious to know what was coming next. A little too much, if not a lot too much, right? And I had been trained in a system that rewarded that kind of anticipatory anxiety. And if I had had more guidance in terms of being willing to, to sort of slow down, there's a, there's a koan in Zen Buddhist training <laughs> that I, I heard from a friend and I thought it was so helpful. If you're sort of sitting in this mud puddle, right, and you keep moving around, you move around and you move around, you never get clarity in the puddle. It's just always this mud puddle. <laughs> and so learning to slow down and sit still and listen to who you are. I know that sounds sort of, it's so not policy wonk of me to say, but in terms of living a life that is meaningful and getting some clarity about what those next steps might be and allowing them to emerge, finding that sort of presence in, in this very time um, with all of its lessons, however hard they are, I think if somebody had offered that to me, that would have been really helpful. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to hear it, but that's what I would say now. <laughs> to close out for today, we want to just give you the floor. Is there anything that maybe we should have asked you but didn't or any just anything else you would like to share to close out 1050 Bascom today? Yeah, I think we're in a time that, that really requires us to learn how to examine our own assumptions and approach complex problems with humility. And the way we're going to do that is only together. It's, I think, I think we have so many clear messages that we're at the end of the individualist era. And no matter what you study or whatever you do for work or whatever it is, recognizing that we're far more powerful in building skills around the collective than we are building up our own quote unquote resume, that's going to get us a long way. That is excellent advice. And I actually just have one more thing to say about that. My mother is Native American and she just taught me this proverb that I think is very fitting. You can snap a single arrow in half over your knee, but you can't snap a bundle. So yeah, thank, I love it, Adam. thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Michaud. It has been a pleasure to have you. Thanks. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>